This last spring, Yale University offered what quickly became its most popular course in its history. It's 316 years old as a university, yet it was the most popular course it ever offered. There were 1,200 students who registered for and attended this semester-long course. And that is about a quarter of the student body at Yale University in one class. And you may be wondering, what in the world is this class? Maybe I should go take that as well. Well, it's Psych 157, Psychology and the Good Life. And the goal of this course was, quote, to teach students how to lead a happier, more satisfying life. And this is a big felt need for people in our culture, especially younger people, because, you know what, people want to live a satisfying, joy-filled life. Yet there are a lot of barriers that keep people from that. I've shared a number of times, even recently, that, that the rates of depression and anxiety are at an all-time high in America. And even at Yale University, more than half of the student body seeks mental health care through the university during their time of enrollment there. And so this is a big need uh, to, to try to find some sort of happier, more satisfying life. And that need is expressed in their attendance at this class. Now, the professor who teaches this class, her name is Dr. Lori Santos. She says that one of her main points that she wants to get across in the class is that the things that Yale students typically look to as markers of success and happiness, like a high GPA and like getting a prestigious internship and getting a high-paying job, people think, okay, these things, if I get those things, they will make me happy. She said, you know what, those things do not lead to happiness. And she goes on to say, quote, scientists didn't realize this in the same way 10 or so years ago. Our intuitions about what will make us happy, like winning the lottery or getting a good grade, are totally wrong. And while I, I agree with her assessment, I kind of chuckle at the statement because, you know what, maybe scientists have only begun recently to fully understand the fact that, that the accomplishments and, and fame and wealth and stuff like that don't make people happy. Christians have known this for centuries and centuries. And so when I think about, okay, what, how are we going to figure out how to live a joy-filled and satisfied life? I think a much better source to look to than a course at Yale is right here in our Bibles. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Psalm 100. Psalm 100. Maybe you're someone who has known for a long time that ultimate joy and satisfaction come from God and God alone. But even if you've known this, Psalm 100 is still incredibly healthy for us. Because I, 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 I believe that all of us, even if we've been walking with God for a long time, have experienced those seasons in life where in our relationship with God, there's not a whole lot of joy. Where we are just kind of going through the motions, kind of like, yeah, I'm here, but I don't really want to be here. Um, and so if that is you, if you've had those times where you're just kind of going through the motions and don't feel a whole lot of joy in your relationship with God, Psalm 100 can be a, a great refresher course for what it looks like to rejoice in the Lord. Let me pray for us, and we'll dig in. Our Father, we thank you that you are willing to share your joy with us. I think of how you sent Jesus to this world to give us life and to give it to us abundantly, and how Jesus said in John 15 that, that I've, uh, I tell you these things. Jesus said, abide in me and I'll abide in you. And Jesus said, I'll I tell you these things so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete.
So thank you, Lord, that you opened the door to joy. And I pray that in our time together now, as we dig into Psalm 100, that you will teach us, rebuke us, correct us, and train us in righteousness so that we will be able to live the lives that you want us to live that glorify you and help us to truly enjoy you as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I invite you to follow along in your Bibles as I read Psalm 100. It says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. Now, we're in a series right now where we're walking step by step through Psalm 100. And today we're going to focus on verse 3. And the main point in verse 3 is the very first sentence that says, Know that the, that the Lord, He is God. Now, there's an important feature in this verse I want to point out, and it's this term, Lord. If you're looking on the screen or looking in your Bibles, you probably recognize that this word Lord is in all caps, all capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Every time you see this in the Old Testament, behind that is the word Yahweh. So the Lord in all caps translates the name Yahweh. And so literally it would say, know that Yahweh, he is God. And you may be wondering, okay, what's this Yahweh stuff all about? We just sang about it. What's it all about? Yahweh is the most personal, intimate, powerful name of God in the Bible. And I think it's important to understand that the, the term God is, is kind of a generic word. A lot of different things could fall under the category of God. They may not be true gods, but still God's a generic word. But even back in Old Testament times, different nations followed different types of gods. Again, they weren't all true gods. There's one true God. His name is Yahweh. But these other gods, they had names as well. Names like Baal and Ashtoreth and Asherah and Moloch and Dagon. All these other gods, they had names. God was a general category and they had all these names. The name of the one true God is Yahweh. That's why it says, know that Yahweh, he is God. And so, so we look at this and we need to know that Yahweh, He is God. And I think of us as Americans. How our issue, our problem as Americans is not that we are tempted to bow down and worship Baal or Ashtoreth or Moloch or, or other gods like that. Our issue is that we have other types of gods. They go by other types of names. The gods of Americans may go by the name Green Bay Packers. Or... Facebook, or Bud Light, or our new car, or the almighty dollar, or success, or popularity, or sex, or comfort, or fun. These are the things that Americans are tempted to bow down and worship. We, we invest our time and our energy and our passion in pursuing these things, thinking that these things, if we just attain them, will give us joy and satisfaction in life. When in reality, only God can give us that ultimate sense of joy and satisfaction. And so that's why the psalmist says, know that Yahweh, he is God. 
And so at times we need to do a gut check to check, okay, what is the God that we are worshiping? Who is really, who or what is on the throne of our hearts? Where are we looking for our ultimate sense of joy and satisfaction? Again, the psalmist correctly says, know that Yahweh, he is God. This is the place to start if we want to live lives of joy and satisfaction. This last uh, fall, I guess we're still kind of in late fall right now, but just a few months ago we offered a Sunday morning class called Gods at War. And I really think that Yale should offer Gods at War rather than psychology and the good life. Because they actually both deal with a lot of the same topics. The only thing is that Gods at War actually goes that next step to, to pointing to the ultimate satisfaction we can have in a relationship with God through Jesus. Psychology and the good life doesn't go that far. And so it doesn't offer the ultimate answer. But, but God's at War is a, is a great class and it features a pastor named Kyle Eidelman. And in the DVDs, Kyle Eidelman uses the analogy of buttoning a shirt. And, and if you've ever worn a shirt like this that has buttons up the front, have you ever had one of those times where you're buttoning a shirt, then you realize it's a bit skewed. The wrong buttons are in the wrong holes. I've had that happen a number of times. I think about that almost every Sunday morning when I'm putting on this shirt. It's been a long time, though, since I buttoned it up incorrectly. And the reason why is I've learned you have to make sure the top button and the collar line up. You get the top button lined up right, and the rest of the buttons just fall right into place. But if you aren't paying attention to how they line up, your odds are pretty decent that you're going to get it all messed up. And so you start with the top, and then everything else falls into place. It's the same thing in our lives. You start with what's most important in your relationship with God. You get a right relationship with God. Know that Yahweh, He is God. And you apply that to our lives. That gets the top button in the right place. Then the rest of the buttons, the rest of the details in life, they may not be perfect because we still live in a broken world, but they fall into place so much easier. And so that's why here in Psalm 100 verse 3, it's so important that we know that Yahweh, He is God. That's the starting point for true life and true joy and true fulfillment in our lives. Now, I want to go through the rest of this verse. I said that that first sentence is the key point. But the rest of it helps illustrate why this truth that Yahweh is God is such an amazing truth. Let's look next. It says, know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us. So he made us. And that gives us. A purpose in life. Let's think for a minute about the broader culture that's around us. The culture in which we live um, every day and every week. The popular philosophy of our culture is called naturalistic evolution. Naturalistic evolution says that there is no God. And therefore everything that exists now basically came about through a long process of time and chance. So everything that is here is basically here by pure luck. That's the common uh, mentality out there in the world today. Now, there are two big problems I see with this I want to point out. One problem is that naturalistic evolution does not really work in explaining how everything got here in the first place. Particularly, it doesn't explain how the universe originated. Because science is good, but it's not sufficient to explain how something came from nothing. That's where you need to understand that God is an important part in that process. So that's one issue. We could dig a lot more into that, but that's not our main focus today. The second important problem that we understand 
with naturalistic evolution, this idea that there is no God and everything just got here kind of by luck, is that it really drains any sense of purpose from our lives. I mean, think about the big questions of life, such as, okay, where did it all begin? Why is anything here at all? Well, it probably began just kind of as an accident. And then you look at the big question of, okay, how will it all end at some point in the future? Well, probably again by some sort of accident. And so what that says is basically we are here by accident. There's no overarching reason why we are here. The other big questions that people ask are, okay, why are we here? How are we supposed to live? Well, science can tell us a lot of things, but it certainly can't tell us why we're here or what our purpose in life is or how we are supposed to live. There's a um, Harvard professor. His name is James Wood. And he wrote an article a few years ago, I think back in 2011. The article was titled, Is That All There Is? James Wood is an atheist. And he is writing this article from an atheistic perspective. But he raises some important questions. One of the things he does, he starts the article by telling the story of one of his friends. Who is a philosopher and is also an atheist. And he tells about how this friend sometimes wakes up in the middle of the night and is haunted by some big questions. Some of the questions are, how can it be that this world is the result of an accidental Big Bang? How could there be no design, no metaphysical purpose? Can it be that every life, beginning with my own, my husband's, my child's, and spreading outward, is cosmically irrelevant? And Dr. Wood, again, he's telling that story about his friend, but he says that he himself, as he is getting older, he is beginning to ask these same questions more and more. They are haunting him as well. And he says they're haunting him not only in the middle of the night, but even during the day. Because it raises the question of, okay, if we are just here by accident, and if we don't have any existence after our, our life on this earth is done, what is the purpose of life? It's a question that haunts all kinds of people. Um, Steve Jobs founder of Apple, before he passed away, he's pondering this reality of why do we accumulate all this experience through life and then it's just all done when we die. He, said, he jokes, maybe that's why I never like to put off switches on my products. Because he doesn't like for things to turn off because it, it haunts him. And so we have that question of where does purpose come from if this life is all there is? And if there is no God who designed us to live in a certain way and, and designed us for a purpose. But we see here in Psalm 100 verse 3. Know that the Lord, he is God, is he who made us. He made us. And so we do have a purpose. As we saw last week, that purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And this is a glorious purpose that gives meaning to every single part of our lives. And so this is one of the reasons why we can have joy and satisfaction in our lives as we seek his purpose rather than just kind of wandering through life, just trying to figure it out as we go. And so we see here that, that he made us and made us for a purpose. So let's look back to Psalm 100 verse 3. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people. So what this points to is that he redeemed us so we are treasured. 
Now you may be wondering, okay, what in the world is the connection between what, I, what Brandon just read and his redemption of us and being treasured? Well, we have to look at this passage in its historical context. Psalm 100 was written by, Jew, by a Jewish person for Jewish people. And Jewish people, as they read Psalm 100 verse 3, and said, where it says, is he who made us, we are his, we are his people, they naturally would have thought about the fact that they are God's chosen people. That's what they would have instinctively uh, thought about when they heard, we are his people. And the time when they became God's chosen people, when they recognized that fact, when there was a covenant between God and them, happened after what's known as the Exodus. For 400 years, these tribes of Israel were in slavery in Egypt. And in what's known as the Exodus, God led, through Moses, led Israel out of captivity into freedom and into a relationship with him. We see this, for instance, in Exodus chapter 19, verses 3 through 6. It says, The Lord is talking to Moses and says, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to my people Israel. And so what we see here is that Yahweh redeemed Egypt, or redeemed Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And then he declared that you are now my holy nation. You are my chosen people. You are my treasured possession. And so this applied originally to the Jewish people. But when we see in Psalm 100 verse 3 that, that we are his people, this also applies to us if our faith is in Christ. Because there has been a new redemption, a new exodus, a new salvation from slavery. And this is a slavery to sin that Jesus, through his death and resurrection, frees us from. And that can make us into a new people. We see, for instance, over in 1 Peter chapter 2, the Apostle Peter has been talking about uh, what Jesus has done for us. And then he says in verses 9 and 10, But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so you hear echoes there. Hopefully if you're paying any attention at all, you hear echoes directly between Exodus 19 and 1 Peter 2. Israel in the past has been called the holy nation, the, the, whole, the, the royal priesthood, the treasured possession. Now, that is, the people of God is Christians. People have come to faith in Christ. And that means that we are valued by God. That we are treasured by God. That we have been given a purpose by God. Because he has redeemed us through Christ, that means that we are treasured. It means that we don't have to wander through life wondering, okay, who am I? Where am I going? Does anyone really care about me? There are a lot of people out there wondering about those questions. But here in the Bible we see definitively that we are treasured. 
and that we are valued. And that is by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This can give us such a sense of, of hope and purpose and identity in our lives that we are loved, loved and treasured by God. Now let's move on in this passage to the final, uh, final phrase. It says, Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. So we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. We, so we see here that he shepherds us. Therefore, we can have confidence. He shepherds us. Therefore, we can have confidence. The idea of God being a shepherd is a very prominent theme throughout Scripture. I mean, most famous, where do you think the most famous place in Scripture is that says God is a shepherd? Say it out loud. Psalm 23. Yes. The Lord Yahweh, it's Lord in all caps again, Yahweh is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. God is a shepherd. Jesus picks up on this exact same theme. For instance, in John chapter 10, Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd who cares for his people and even goes as far as laying down his life for his sheep on their behalf to redeem them. And so we see the shepherd imagery throughout Scripture. And throughout Scripture, we see that God is the shepherd and we are the sheep. I mean, it's metaphorical. Obviously, we are not literally sheep, but we are like sheep. And one of the key aspects of a sheep is that sheep on their own are helpless. Sheep need a shepherd. And so don't take this personally, but the bottom line is God is saying, you can't do this on your own. You're helpless on your own. He's saying you need a shepherd. He's saying that to every single one of us, that he is a shepherd and we are to be the sheep. Now, I have never been a sheep. You haven't either. But I think we can probably imagine how a sheep would feel. I mean, if a sheep has the cognitive ability to understand this, I'm not sure if they do or not. But if a sheep is fairly smart, we can imagine how a sheep would feel in the presence of a shepherd. A sheep in the presence of a shepherd would probably feel safe, would feel confident, would feel comfortable, would feel like, you know what, I'm doing fine. They they would feel a sense of well-being because they are in the presence of a shepherd. Because when a sheep is in the presence of a shepherd, they know that a shepherd will take care of them. I mean, go back to Psalm 23. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I mean, that's shepherd imagery again. A rod was a big stick that a shepherd would use to defend off any sort of attackers or predators to protect the sheep. The staff is that famous uh, hooked thing that would be used in order to pull back any sheep that are wandering away again to protect the sheep. And as long as the sheep is in the presence of the shepherd, the sheep is safe and comfortable and confident. The times when the sheep is not safe is when it wanders away from the shepherd. And we look at, look at our lives as humans and look at our culture around us. The times when we can lack confidence and have anxiety and insecurity are the times that we wander away from God. Because if we're close to God, if we're near to our heavenly shepherd, we can trust him. But so many people are trying to get through life trusting in themselves. And they want to control things for themselves. And the, the reality is we are not in control. And the more people try to control things in their lives, and the more they realize they are in control, the more that leads to anxiety and insecurity and doubt. 
You know, because the bottom line is that no matter how smart we are, and no matter how hard we work, and no matter how much wealth or accomplishment we accumulate, we are not in control. And every single person experiences circumstances that continually remind them that we are not in control. And if we want to be in control, this is going to freak us out. And this is why so many people deal with anxieties and insecurities. I mean, there may be some other reasons as well. But this is at the core of it, is that we want to be in control. And it's scary when we realize we aren't in control. Or at least it's scary if we don't have someone bigger than ourselves to trust in. And that's where God, as the shepherd, makes a world of difference. Because we see in Scripture that God is a loving and a good shepherd. That he is eternally faithful. And that even when we face trials in life, that we can still trust him. And that can give us the confidence. And, and this is a great thing. I mean, to me, this is absolutely excellent news. That we are not left to ourselves to navigate the complexities of life. I mean, just think about it. We're all alive at this moment. And we may have plans for what we're going to do this afternoon. But I would guess that some of us are going to have things happen this afternoon, whether good or bad, that at this moment of time that we cannot anticipate. And how much less, no matter how much we plan, how much less can, can we predict and control what's going to happen next week or next month or next year? And again, this reality can freak us out unless we understand that God is trustworthy. Because if we stay near to the shepherd... We can trust that he is going to lead us, and he is going to protect us, and he is going to care for us. Now, this can still be a challenge because we like to control things ourselves. And when we follow him as shepherd, it means that we're yielding control to him. And there are times that his timetable is different than ours, and the direction he wants us to go is different than our dreams. But we have to recognize that his way is best, even though it's not always our way. And we look at our lives and the things we value. And it can be kind of scary as we look at our lives and think about the future of, you know what, we want our family to be a certain way. We want our job to work out a certain way. We want certain ideals for our financial future. Or, or we want, um, I mean, with our, with our health or we have other goals and dreams. We can make plans for these things and have hopes for these things. But at the end of the day, we aren't in control of those things. Or for us as Freedom's Church, I mean, we, we, we see a lot of exciting things going on around us and here in our church family. And we have exciting plans for the future. Planning is not a bad thing. But we have to remember that God is the one ultimately in control. And our call is to follow him step by step. I mean, I think even of this capital campaign that we're in. I mean, it's exciting to think about the building project, which there are a lot of things that, that really seem to be needed for us as a church family in the building project. We're seeking to raise $1.4 million. It's a daunting goal. There is no guarantee that we will make it to that goal in the capital campaign. I hope we do. I'm praying we do. I mean, from, from our perspective, it seems like the building project will go the smoothest um, and yield the best results if we're able to reach that goal and move forward smoothly. But we don't know. We don't know. And that could be a great cause of anxiety, especially for me as a pastor, because I'm kind of the, the face of this process, even though a whole lot of other people are involved in it. But for me and for all of us, whether it's with a capital campaign, or whether it's with our family, or our job situation, or whatever, the call is to trust God. 
He does not give us a grand roadmap for the course of our lives. You even think about when God was leading Moses and Israel uh, in, into the promised land from captivity in, in Egypt. He didn't give them a roadmap. He said, follow me step by step. He gave a pillar of, of, of cloud and of flame to guide them. When that pillar of cloud or flame moved, they were to move. When it stayed, they were to stay. It's a step-by-step process of continually depending on God. And so it's the same way for us. Sometimes it would be nice if we had a pillar of cloud or a voice from heaven. We usually don't have those things. So for us, what it is, is it's the walk by faith. Saying, God, where are you calling me today? And then we get to tomorrow, where are you calling me today? And it's a walk by faith, step by step by step. And we need a humility and a flexibility to respond to where God is leading us day by day by day. And if we are following him day by day, we will never be outside of his will. And this may still be kind of scary because we like to be in control and we want our plans. We want things to fall into place exactly how we want. But we all know from experience it doesn't always work that way. But we can still have confidence as we go through life because we are the sheep of his pasture. He is a good shepherd who wants to guide us. And so all this leads to one really important question. And the question is this. Are you surrendering to God's leadership in your life? This is a question for us as individuals. It's a question for us as a church because the call is to be continually surrendering ourselves to God. When Psalm 100 verse 3 says, Know that Yahweh, He is God, it's not uh, just an intellectual head knowledge. It's, It's a truth that transforms our lives. And it should lead to the sense of surrender of saying, God, not my will, but yours be done. And again, I come back to this idea of a course. I think, you know what, the Bible is the best textbook we can ever have for, for how to live our lives and how to experience joy and satisfaction in our lives. It's so much better than a course you can ever take at Yale, even though I'm sure that's an intriguing course. This is much better. Psalm 100 is a great chapter in this book for finding joy and satisfaction in life. It says God created us, and God treasures us, and God guides us. And because of this, he gives us a solid sense of identity and confidence in life. There are many things in life that are going to rattle us, many curveballs that come our way, both blessings and challenges. But God, through it all, is trustworthy. And it's only when we are following him as our shepherd that we can experience an unshakable sense of confidence and hope through everything we experience. But through him, we can have joy. We can have satisfaction. And it won't all be perfect, but he is completely trustworthy. And I think about a funeral that we had just a few weeks ago here at the church for Ross Balsam. Ross, um, I mean, it, it was a sad time because we didn't want him to die yet, his family particularly. I mean, he was in his early 80s, had a stroke, and then, I mean, just kind of struggled for I mean, a handful of weeks and then passed away. And again, his funeral was here just a few weeks ago. But one of the things about Ross is that he had a strong faith in God. And that faith really did influence the way that he lived his life. One of his mottos of life is that it will always work out. And this wasn't just some trusting in fate or just, uh, you know, I'm going to work hard and I'll get it to work out. It was a trust in God. And that funeral was one of the coolest funerals I've been at. I've been at a lot of good ones, but this one was good. And in the sense of, you know, it's a celebration of a man who loved Christ. 
and whose character um, just was a character that, that emulated Christ. And because he had a deep trust in God, he lived life with a sense of confidence, but also a sense of peace and calmness. That even as he faced trials, and he had a lot of trials in his life, that he was able to face them even with a smile that came from trusting God. Because Ross knew that God is trustworthy, that God is guiding him, that God is good. And that gave him a confidence that he can do the same for all of us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you give us a source of confidence and hope. Lord, we thank you that we are not left to our own devices to try to figure out how to, how to make something out of our lives. Lord, we're called to follow you, and that is still a daunting task at times because, you know, we don't always see clearly what's going to happen in the future. We really don't at all, but we're thankful that you are trustworthy, and I pray that you will help each one of us to follow you step by step, and that in the process that we will glorify you and enjoy you forever. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.